Turn to your Bibles, please, to Genesis chapter 6. God walked alone, unhonored, through the earth. For him, no heart-built temple open stood. The soul, forgetful of her nobler birth, had fashioned lofty shrines of stone and wood and left unfinished in ruins still, the only temple he delights to fill. As we move into Genesis chapter 6, we see that humanity has plummeted to a place beyond repair. The human soul, empty and in ruins, as it says in the poem I just read, that God walked alone, unhonored through the earth. You hear that? We've been talking about how Enoch walked with God, and now we hear, even in this poem, as we see in this text, that now God walks alone, unhonored through the earth. And Noah and his family, had they're the only ones that had room in their hearts for God. All others had ignored their, their nobler birth. As we have pointed out before, the human soul was made to worship. That, that is our nobler birth, right? That, but, but only the worship of creator God will satisfy. Humanity was made in the image of God, not to be gods, but to represent and bring glory to the one and only true God, almighty maker of heaven and earth. That was what he set us apart to do. And what an honor we ought to say in response to that is, wow, what an honor and what a privilege it is that we could serve as his representatives. You mean me. That should be the response. It, is, it, it, it ought to stir in us when we learn that a seeking out to God. But instead, what we see happening is that this privilege humanity had come to deny. That's what we see in in chapter 6, this is a privilege that they uh, had come to deny as they resist the will of God and embrace instead their self-willed hearts. The scary thing is we think of it, putting it that way, that might sound a little bit like what you and I are prone to. Embrace instead our self-willed hearts. Here in Genesis chapter 6, we see three things. If you're taking notes, I encourage you to do so. You can use the back of your bulletin or something else. But first, we see humanity in ruins. Second, God's judgment decreed. Third, God's grace extended. So let's read the passage beginning in verse 1 of Genesis chapter 6. When mankind began to multiply on the earth and the daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of mankind were beautiful. And they took any they chose as wives for themselves. And the Lord said, My spirit will not remain with mankind forever because they are corrupt. Their days will be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth both in those days and afterwards when the sons of God came uh, to the daughters of mankind who bore children to them. They were the powerful men of old, the famous men. When the Lord saw, verse 5, 
When the Lord saw that human wickedness was widespread on the earth and that every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil all the time, listen to this sad statement. The Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and he was deeply grieved. Then the Lord said, I will wipe mankind who I created off the face of the earth together with the animals, creatures that crawl, birds of the sky, for I regret that I have made them. Noah, however, found favor with God. Yahweh. The first four verses here are a description of the immense evil that has consumed the earth at this time. We can say that humanity is in ruins. That is what we see here in the first four verses. Now, additionally, what we see here in the first four verses, what we have in front of us, which we are going to spend uh, a great deal of time to try to explain, but what we also have in front of us uh, is one of the most debated texts in Scripture. So, there you go. Uh, <laughs> and the most common questions being asked is, and you have already asked them probably, who are the sons of God? Who are the Nephilim? Right? There are other questions to ask, but as we just considered this issue, four most popular views are that the sons of God are one, the line of Seth. That's one view. Another view is that they are fallen angels. Another view is that they are lesser gods within the pantheon or four powerful rulers. Now, the thrust of this section that we're looking at here in our text is to highlight the extent of human wickedness on the earth. So if we say a few words about that, then draw our interpretation out of the overall thrust of the passage. Where is the author here in Genesis? Where's Moses trying to go? Sadly, what we see as we open there in verse one, that as mankind multiplied, God was not more glorified, was he? No, instead, his good creation becomes more evil and corrupt. Mankind has embraced evil and given itself over to the cosmic powers of darkness and the spiritual forces of evil. Ephesians 6 talks about this. And with this in mind, right, I would understand that these sons of God to be demons that took possession of the evil, self-willed hearts of these men, these rulers. I believe these demons are the fallen angels referenced in 1 Peter 3, 19 and 20. You could turn there if you wanted. When Jesus, after his crucifixion and resurrection, preached a victorious sermon to the it says, spirits in prison, Right? And the Holy Spirit raised Christ, also empowered Christ to go and proclaim his victory to these evil angels. That's what 1 Peter teaches us. And there at the end of 1 Peter 3, 18 through 20, it states, Christ made alive by the Spirit in which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison who in the past were disobedient the past well how far well it tells us who in the past were disobedient when God patiently waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared 
Could it be? And, and, and Peter likes to talk about these fallen angels, so he mentioned them again in 2 Peter 4 as he warns of the judgment being reserved for the unrighteous. Right, But Peter is not the only one that references these angels. Jude, verse 6, offers more clarity, I think, for the possibility that the sons of God here in Genesis 6 were demon angels possessing men. Jude 6 speaks of, and I quote there from Jude, angels who did not keep their own, but abandoned their proper dwelling. And the result, it says, is that they have been, and I quote, kept in eternal chains in deep darkness for the judgment on that great day. The evil angels are put in chains because they went too far, right? The other significant thing to consider in our study is that while God's people sometimes... Uh, are referred to as his sons. We see in Job and in Daniel that sons of God is also referring to angels. Okay? So there's that. Additionally, in Luke 20, 34 and 36, we can infer from that passage that angels cannot marry or procreate. Um, because, perhaps because, that's, because they're sexless. All right? These and, and so we assume that these men who were so evil and these angels that were so evil had commandeered the souls of the men and they were marrying the daughters of mankind and giving then birth to the Nephilim. And so this, in this interpretation, we assume the Nephilim mentioned, look there in verse 4, are the offspring of these marriages. They were the powerful and famous, right? But they are not gods. They were of the flesh. And I think we get that even, uh, we can state that confidently because here in the text is saying that their days were numbered. They would die in the floodwaters just like everybody else. Now someone might raise a question, well, what about the Nephilim over in Numbers 16? Is this flood real? Did it kill everybody? Because here they are mentioned again, Right? But we know that there's no link in terms of a direct line, uh, genetically speaking, from those here in Genesis 6 to those here in Numbers 13 because of the flood, right? Uh, but the link would be the possibility, right, that the pagan godless nations that too often influenced Israel gave themselves over to these demonic influences once again okay as it says there in six that the nephilim were on the earth in those days and afterwards because even after they were wiped out then we have this problem again the point here though regardless of all the textual difficulties is that the sins and the wickedness on the earth had increased to levels that it had never been the moral decline within humanity was so severe, severe that, that demons felt right at home. In fact, so much so that they seized control of human souls. You say, man, that, just, <laughs> that seems kind of unbelievable. 
And part of, you know, our, our materialistic mindset, and what I mean by materialistic are our naturalistic uh, philosophical assumptions in this day and age is we, we wrestle with the difficulty of all the evil that can go on in the unseen. And so that's why often when you start to say that, you know, there's some kind of demonic eugenics going on here that, that, that you know, you're going, whoa, 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 what are you talking about? Yeah, it's really evil. That's what we're talking about, and that is the point of the text here. These fallen angels wielded so much power that no one could stop them from taking advantage of any woman they wanted. And how scary, I think as I meditated on that, how scary that was. If you are a righteous man with a wife and a daughter in that context, how scary it is to think that it's only by the mercy and grace of God that your family would be protected from, from such error. Before these evil sons of God, even the most powerful, the most us, would not have the chance to protect our home. And personally, I cringe at the fact, as I look here at verse 2, as it says, they took any of the beautiful woman they wanted as their wives. Right. Some speculate this is where men got the idea of harems. Kings and rich, powerful men taking as many wives as they wanted to fulfill their sexual desires. This was abuse, y'all. Right when we read that, and it says there that they they took the, the beautiful the men were and the sons of God saw that the daughters of mankind were beautiful, and they took any. We're not to say there's not this is not a romantic novel going on. It, it's it's highlighting the the trash that had become the evil the wickedness. The abuse uh, was animalistic treatment even. Based on the level, though, of evil that was going on, perhaps it had become just common, acceptable. The passage is clear that society degenerated. Wickedness and evil is the norm. And what these sons of God were doing was a stench in the nostrils of the Almighty, that's for sure. In the face of this, we see, though, that God's not asleep, okay? He's paying attention to how we are acting, and he is paying attention to how even people that have not acknowledged him are acting, right? We are all his creation. We are all made in the image of God, and, and God as the righteous judge has his eye on each and every one of his creation. I think that is what we see even as we turn to verse 3. Right? That we should not mistake his silence in the face of our sin as permission. No, God sees what's going on and he is grieved and angered by it. And what is happening is that in God's loving kindness... Right? Our God is long-suffering, and he would rather pour out his mercy than his wrath, yet he cannot withhold his judgment and consequences forever, and, there, and therefore we see him intervene there in verse 3, saying, my spirit will not remain with mankind forever because they are corrupt. Their days will be 120 years. 
decrease in morality and then an increase in the consequences for humanity. God has been contending, we see, he, he has been contending for the human family, giving them long life and fertility. We see that in chapter 5. This is even after the fall. But here in 6, we see he's saying, I am not going to do it anymore. I am through. So humanity in ruins. And now verse 3 and 5 through 7, we see that the time has come for God to deliver the consequences and decree his judgments over the earth. Let's look there at their days will be 120 years. Essentially just saying that mankind will die quicker. Part of the judgment. Two possible interpretations. The coming of the flood is anticipated in 120 years, so everyone is going to die. This is one interpretation of what that 120 years means, that everybody's going to die except Noah and his family, and God's not going to put up with it, and you've got 120 years, and then he's going to kill everyone through the judgment of the flood. Or another way to look at that 120 years is a general statement about a new lifespan for mankind. Now, after the flood, we see the lifespan decrease tremendously, don't we? Yet, we do have Abraham living 175 years, and we do have Isaac living 180 years. And so we would have to take this as a general statement, if we were going to say it's about the lifespan even afterwards, that we'd say it's not true in every case. Some will die much sooner than 120 years, and some will live a little longer. But here's the point, that they won't be averaging the 900 years of life that we see in chapter 5. And I think it's a general statement regarding men and women's new lifespan as decreed by God because of humanity's extreme corruption. They are sentenced to death. We are sentenced to death. Where? When did that first happen? There in the garden, right? When Adam sinned and they're sentenced to death at the fall. But now, because of this new level of corruption, that death sentence will be experienced seven and a half times faster. God is angry. This isn't how it was supposed to be yet again. Life is short. Now let us meditate on God's decree that his spirit will not remain with mankind forever. Through Enoch and now through Noah, we see that the spirit of God was striving with mankind. God was contending, as we just said a second ago, for the human family. His spirit was present in this time and attempting to convict. We talked a few weeks back about how Enoch preached. And we can imagine that some listened and were brought to faith in God when he did. Otherwise, we could assume that, that God would have destroyed them way back then. But, but he didn't. And he relents. Right? And now we're at Noah. And God had Noah preach. And preach, and preach, and preach, and preach. But he preached in vain. No one would hear his call to turn to God. Now we are talking anywhere from 6 million and 4 billion people on the earth. I realize that is quite a spread. But the point here is that each tribe, no nation, right? No nation, no tribe, no people 
No person would hear the call of God as the Spirit moved to convict through the preaching of Noah. Man resisted God. And it reminds us of Stephen's sermon when he preached. And he said to those that were listening to him, you stiff-necked people, you resist the Holy Spirit. Noah was undoubtedly calling people to repentance, but they did not hear it. And so God warns of the consequence of such resistance. My spirit will not remain with you forever. I am going to give you over to your degenerate mind. I think of people who have felt the spirit of God convict them. Some of you in here certainly have felt the spirit of God convict you. But what about those people, and maybe some in here this morning, who have felt the Spirit of God convicting them, but in the end they do not listen but resist? You see, the voice of God calls out to us this morning. It calls calling us to repent and to give our whole selves to Him. And I hope you hear this warning that your resistance to God's convicting voice can eventually sear your conscience. So that you will never hear again or have the opportunity. He said, well, when will that time come? I don't know. As Paul tells us of the false teachers when writing to Timothy in his first letter, chapter 4, verse 2, he says that their conscience was seared. That means their hearts were so hardened and cauterized that they could not discern between what was right and wrong. And that, I think, is a scary thing. You think of the consequence of continuing to resist God and hand yourselves over to him to be ruled by the corrupt desires of your flesh. Well, I'll just do it one more time. You know, the, the listening to my flesh and doing the self-willed thing is working out for me pretty well. God seems to be silent on the matter, so I will just keep marching in that direction with an occasional nod to him in my life but we continue to resist what God is really calling us to, a true walk with him like we see in Enoch, a true walk with him like we see in Noah. The Lord intervenes with a very dramatic warning about that sort of thing, saying, my spirit will not remain with you forever because you are corrupt. And a day will come when I will withdraw and all hope for your vacant soul will be lost forever with no hope of recovery. You say, well, when will that happen? You know, I think I know somebody. I say, no, we strive with people and we pray the Spirit will strive for people as long as they have the breath of life in them because we do not know when a person's conscience may be seared, right? We, we can't deal with that. But a day will come when you don't have the breath of life in you and certainly that is the time when all hope of recovery, where a hope of, of filling your vacant soul with the life and peace of God is gone. There is reason, David, pray, cast me not away from your presence. Charles, Charles Simeon says, if we continue obstinate in our sins, the doom of Israel must of necessity be ours. Of them it is said, they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore, he was turned to be their enemy, and he fought against them. And we verily can expect no other than that he 
whose solicitations we refuse to follow as a friend shall eventually send forth his vindictive judgments against us as his enemy. He is a serious, serious, loving, loving, almighty, mighty God. We see this is the fate of the human population. At this point in history, they will be swallowed up in judgment. At this decree of judgment, they will be swallowed up. No hope for recovery. He makes this clear in 5 through 7. Look there with me. When the Lord saw that human wickedness was widespread on the earth and that every inclination, hear that. Oh, how sad. How corrupt. Every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil all the time. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and he was deeply grieved. Then the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom, listen to that and highlight that and circle that, whom I created. Right? Why do I ask you to highlight that and circle that? I will wipe mankind whom I created. Highlight that. Why? Because too often we are tempted to say, well, God, that's a little over the top. But God, you don't have the right. But God, you know, I thought you were a loving God. But God, you know, that doesn't seem consistent. And so I'm going to come up with a new version of you. Okay? And we say, but what we have to remember there and what we have to highlight and what we have to circle there is that whom I created, we are his to do with what he pleases. Right? And when I say we are his, I mean we are his creation. We are not by default his son or his daughter. We only get there by way of Christ. But we are his creation. And if he so chooses, and he chooses here to wipe mankind off the face of the earth, together with the animals and the creatures that crawl and the birds of the sky, for I regret that I made them. What a bitter day. <laughs> Can you imagine? Especially if you've been with us from the beginning, when we start opening Genesis and we're looking there in Genesis and God is just celebrating. Look, look at my creation. Look how good it is. Look how good it is. Look how good it is. And now here he is. This is a bitter day for God. And we see the pain in the heart of God as he looks out over the culture, as he looks out over society, as he looks into the, into the homes of the family where they think he cannot see them and how they are treating their spouses and how they are treating their children and how they are treating one another. And, and God is looking out and he, and he is looking in the, the back rooms where they think they are not being noticed by anyone. And he is seeing all the beauty that he intends in these settings and all the good that was intended. And when he looks out, he can't see any good. In all these places that he looks, oh, society and 
over here should be doing this. The culture should be looking like this and glorifying me and the family home and the, the parent and, and the child relationship. Oh, it should be doing and looking like this. This is how I made it to thrive and, and the husband and wife. And oh, look, it's beautiful. They should be, this is how it should be. And oh, look over here, these, these siblings right here, they're loving each other and getting along. That is how I intended it. And no, no, he, he looks out and he sees more killing. He sees more destruction. He sees more pain. He sees that his good creation has turned deeply wicked. His long suffering has ran its course and now his heart is grieved with pain. It says God regretted that he had made man. Some of your translations might say that he repented. And this is not saying that God changed his mind about us or creation, but it's stressing the point that God is extremely grieved. It's stressing the point that immense pain in the heart of God because of the sin of man. Man's sin caused man pain, and man's sin caused God pain. And it's not a pain and a grief that thwarts God's course, okay? That's not what we have here. That's not what's being described. But it indicates it's time for judgment rather than comfort. Lamech in 529 called out. He said, man, this is painful, right? And he called out to be comforted. Well, it's not time for that. And so God decrees his irrevocable plan to wipe the human race, who he has created, off the face of the, of the earth. And he's going to kill everyone. The divine judgment of God over those who he has created is a real thing. I want us to sit with that for a minute. It's a real thing, the divine judgment of God. And it's the right thing because we are his creation. And this is a message that Moses wrote to give to the nation of Israel to awaken them, to bring them to their senses, right? That they were to be set apart as a people of God. They are not to be influenced by uh, uh, the many godless and evil and demonic cultures and activities that were around them, the people of God there that Moses is writing to, the Israelites, right? They were to be influencers for righteousness, not sponges for wickedness. And when we assess our own culture, perhaps we cannot go as far as to say it's demonized. But in the words of Kent Hughes, the signs are growing more ominous. Ominous, excuse me. He says, certainly a demonization of sexual relations has taken place. How can you conclude otherwise? When at given times on the major networks, you can view men on top of women and women on top of men and same-sex individuals engaged in artificial sexual intercourse. And it is artificial. I talk about it as if it's normal. There's nothing normal about it. How can you think otherwise that our culture is not demonized when screens are filled with so much trash and how many Christians will watch and laugh at so much godless perversion? How can you watch, for example, the modern family and not be sick as it denigrates the beauty of God's design? These things ought to grieve our souls. 
we see the wickedness widespread throughout our world. And more specifically, our own country, evil exploits that used to be hidden under the cover of darkness or tucked away in a back room are now boldly paraded through our streets and even in our living rooms. Because we allow it. In the days of Noah, there was an intermingling of evil. And we could look and be like, how did they let it get so far out of hand? And as we just reflect on what I just read about, and, and share with you about, or reflect on our own lives, we say, oh, wait, 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 wait. I can see how easy it is to choose evil and then choose it again and then choose it again and then choose it again. There was an intermingling of evil. And when I say that, that means evil on top of evil. People had gone too far. Evil angels had gone too far. The wickedness was so widespread. Things were so out of hand that God saw the only way forward was to exterminate humanity from the face of the earth. His judgment total, but His grace precise. Okay. And there's this one little verse as we transition to our last point. At the end of this section, where we see God extends his grace. Verse 8, look at it, circle it, highlight it, tattoo it on your somewhere. If you're into tattoos, I don't know. As a reminder, Noah, however, found favor with God. Noah found favor with God. Favor here is translated grace, y'all. <laughs> Noah found grace with the Lord. In the face of God's judgment, which is certain, a person's only hope is to find favor with the Lord. And how do you do that? What? Well, you work really hard at building an ark. No, no, right? We know, we know Noah found grace and favor with God before he built the ark. No, you can't work for it. Hmm. Yeah, all that you brought in here, all the sins that you brought in here, all the garbage, all the problems you cause in your own life because of your sin. I pray that the Spirit would humble you and help you see the biggest problem in your life is, 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 is you. That was, so, that was so freeing when I, when I realized that for my own life and I could go to Christ and He was there to fix me <laughs> by forgiving me. Hmm. God must extend his grace if we are to be rescued from the universal flood. Not of Noah's day, but the ultimate flood of God's wrath on the final day of judgment when Christ returns to judge the earth, both the living and the dead. And we don't have to leave here wondering whether he will extend his grace to us, okay? <laughs> You don't have to leave here like wondering, will he see me like he saw Noah? Right? No, God has made it a much more certain way by providing us his only son. In fact, that is why he preserved Noah 
in order to rescue humanity, in order to rescue you, in order to rescue me from the bondage of sin and deliver us from his final judgment. We read about this over in Matthew 24, 36. I want you to turn there. Jesus, over in Matthew 24, 36, tells us that a day and the hour of that final judgment is unknown. And not even the angels in heaven know it. You hear that? Not even uh, Jesus. That, that was something when you read that. that, that Jesus is returned and he doesn't even know it. That's a stumper right there. But only the Father knows. And here when Jesus speaks of his imminent return to judge the world, who does he reference? He references, he's talking about what we've been talking about here this morning. He references Noah and the flood. He's saying, hey, y'all, I want to warn you. Like Jesus only got so many words when he was here. Do you get it? And some of them are written down for us. He was only here for three years, right? So we, in terms of his ministry. And so we want to really pay attention. I think it would be good to pay attention to these scriptures here as we look at Matthew 24, 37, 39, here Jesus references Noah and the flood. He's saying people weren't paying attention to Noah building the ark until when? Until the day the waters came and drowned them. He says it, beginning in 37, as the days of Noah were, so the coming of the Son of Man will be. For in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day of Noah boarded the ark. And when Noah built, boarded the ark, right, they didn't know even then. They probably look at him, what a goofball. They didn't know until the flood came and swept them all away. This is the way the coming of the Son of Man will be. This is what Jesus says. This is the way the coming of the Son of Man will be. Let, it, let, let this truth stir us now as we close here this morning. That this is the way, Jesus says, the coming of the Son of Man will be. People will be shocked. People will be surprised. will be taken off guard. But most important warning here, church, is that people won't hear it. Everybody, please hear this. The most important warning here is that people won't be ready. They won't be ready. And so Jesus continues his talk there in Matthew 24, saying, Therefore be alert, since you don't know the day or the hour of the Lord's coming. But know this, if the homeowner had known what time the thief was coming, he would have stayed alert, stayed up all night, and not let his house be broken into. This is why you are also to be ready, because the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. I want you, church, and anyone in here, okay, that has not turned and given their heart to Christ by faith, I want you to be prepared for the flood of God's judgment this morning. You, you don't have to leave here unprepared. If you have not received the forgiveness for your rebellion against God, this is the way to ready yourself, okay? God extend his grace right now. The offer is there. The free offer is there. He extends his grace to us today through Jesus' death on the cross. There at the cross, innocent Jesus suffered the consequence of your rebellion against God. 
There on the crosses, a cross, Jesus took your sin on himself. He was our substitute sacrifice. He faced the judgment and the wrath of God so we don't have to. He was declared guilty as he was declared guilty. Right? So we didn't have to be declared guilty. But to experience this grace, how is it? How do we do it? Well, we simply have to turn to Christ with a believing heart, as it says in Romans 10, 9. Right? You see, God has made a way. In his loving kindness, he has made a way. As it says in Romans 10, 9, if you would just right now confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, you will be saved. Today, if you're sitting in this room, if you hear his voice, do not Harden your hearts as you've done many times before when you've heard this message. Today is the day to receive the free gift of salvation. Today, today, hear it please. Today, if you turn and put your trust in Jesus, can you believe it? Your sins will be wiped out and you will be forgiven. Wow, he desires to extend his grace to you. Isn't that amazing truth? Let this passage and the warning of his ultimate irrevocable judgment affect you. Did you hear that? Let this passage and the warning of his ultimate irrevocable judgment affect you. You don't know how much longer you have to answer his solicitation. As he has stated in our text, his spirit will not contend with mankind forever. And some of you have put on the doors of your hearts a message that says, no soliciting. And you intend that message to be to God. And you need to rip that down and begin to seek his face. The opportunity to receive His grace will come to an end. Our lives are short and we don't have much time. So we encourage you this morning to seek the things that belong to your peace. This morning, cry out to God and repent of your rebellion so that you may come to your senses and escape the trap of the devil who has taken you captive to do His will, not God's will. And some of you in here this morning find yourself in just that place where you are being dragged around as if by a horse's bit. The devil is just dragging you around to do his will. But it doesn't have to be that way. This morning, it doesn't have to be that way. If you but put your faith in Christ, he will release you from that bondage and extend to you the grace you need to walk with Him. And for those of you who have received the grace of God in Christ Jesus, the challenge for you is to stay alert. The need for His grace is a daily need. Right? Therefore, we must, as Simeon, Charles Simeon says, <laughs> we must... 
There's not any part of the divine life that we can live. Right. But by the operation of the Holy Spirit. This is for the believer in the Lord. This is for the person who put their faith in Christ. We must recognize our need for His Spirit. Right. He must be within us, a spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of counsel and of might, a spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And how do we have this communion with the presence of Christ and the Holy Spirit but by dining with Him in His holy word? So church, we can and we must stay alert that we are prepared for His ultimate judgment. And we want to cry out with God's heart for those who have yet to turn and make peace with God through Christ. Right? We have some work to do. Right? And we want to make the extension of His grace, this invitation, we want to make that known to those who have yet to receive so that they do not approach the judgment of God without the blood of Christ. For then it will be too late for them. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you stir our hearts by the power of your spirit that we would seek your face and we would be careful to come to you and put ourselves underneath the direction of your word and your spirit so that we might be constantly uh, making sure there is no secret sin wreaking havoc on our life and keeping us from doing your will. God, we don't want to be left in our sin. And we thank you that because of Christ, you have released us from the bondage of our sin. That we, we don't have to walk around. We don't have to leave here today beaten up and beat down and controlled by our sin, that there is hope. And we thank you also, God, that, that even now you extend your invitation to any one person in here who has not surrendered their heart and their life to you, that you are ready and willing and, and are, are excited to extend your grace to them. That is why you sent your son, because you love that person in here who has not turned themselves into you. And God, so I just pray that by the power of your spirit that you would convict them to surrender their life to you and receive the forgiveness that you so freely offer in Christ, God. Thank you for forgiving our sins. Awaken us as your church to be alert to the things that you want us to be about as we wait your second coming. God, it is real and it is certain, and may we be about your business and not be caught in apathy, wasting our time with things that don't matter in building this kingdom. But God, may we be caught when you come in your second coming, may we be caught building your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.